0: Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level Low power frequency, radio modulation The big sound from underground We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before We bring the sound communication of our tribal war Dark vision fly by.
1: Good afternoon, Madison. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Maldrow, and this is a public affair. Today we are talking to three amazing activists and organizers. We're talking to Jerry from The Y. We're talking to Susan Raffo, the author of Liberated to the Bone, and Autumn Brown, the co-host of How to Survive, at the end of the world, and one of the organizers I have admired for years. You all are gonna hear me fangirl so hard for the next hour. Joining us first today is Jerry Paredes Vasquez. Jerry is the Race and Gender Equity Director at the YWCA in Madison. That sounds like a very intense and involved role, Jerry, because your mission statement is eliminating racism. I I actually can't remember the second part of it. What's the other part of the mission?
2: Yes, absolutely. It's uh, You know, actually, sometimes I have also... A hard time remember the whole thing, but I think it's a good practice to name all of the pieces, right? So it's Eliminating Racism, Empowering Women, and Promoting Peace, Justice, Dignity, and Freedom for All. So that's the whole, and you're right, is, you know, bold, timely, and also uh, pretty visionary and pretty needed in these times, I would say.
1: It seems like a lot of work and you seem like the right person to do that work um, as like, you know, the way that you lead is so loving and is so generous towards people. Talk to me a little bit about how you determined that Susan and Autumn were the right people to be at the 2023 Racial Justice Summit for the Y this October.
2: Oh, yes. Thank you so much for that question. Yeah, you know, with both of them, with these two just amazing human beings, as well as with our opening keynotes, Ruha Benjamin and Clint Smith, um, I feel they're speaking to What we have named as the three pillars of the summit this year, which is intersectional racial justice, meaning that we need to find each other across movements, across fields, across areas of work. Right. And to start building not only the um, power and the structural actions, but also the courageous practices and the courageous skills that we need to actually engage to be in right relationship with each other. And that leads me to the other two pillars, which is collective healing and liberation. And uh, both of, you know, Raffles and Autumn Brown's work just um, is so inspiring on the ways that they are themselves practicing this, right? And they are asking us, uh, you know, there was one question, I'm still getting chills, there was one question that actually Autumn Brown asked, which was, what would it take for us to be the courageous membership of a vibrant multiracial movement, right? And to actually bring that back to us and start breeding life into what we want to see more, which is this piece of creating new possibilities, no? So how can we actually, as much as we're dedicating um, you know, our, our attention and our time to the things that we need to disrupt, which is really important and is a huge part of the work. We also need to dedicate time to create the ways of being and relating and and the cultures and the structures that we want to see so that we can actually be in realities of justice and liberation and healing. So, yeah, so that's how they came um, to our hearts and our minds. Um, as you can imagine, the summit is also... Uh, huge collective engagement. And so endeavor uh, in itself, in its creation. And so in conversations, we all, we're all always sharing, you know, who who are we practicing with? Uh, what are books that have really moved us, the spaces that have really moved us? And, and raffle and Autumn Browns, uh, we both experienced their spaces and the writing and it, 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 it was really moving to us. So they felt like the right folks to bring here at home in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, We're going to jump into the conversation with Autumn and Susan now. But we're excited
1: to have you come back towards the end of the conversation, Jerry.
2: Awesome. Thank you, Ali.
1: Autumn Brown is a mother organizer, theologian, artist, and facilitator. She currently serves on the board of directors of Voices for Racial Justice and the Common Fire Foundation. Autumn is a facilitator at the Anti-Oppression Resource Training Alliance a worker-owned cooperative devoted to strengthening movements for social justice and solidarity and a a solidarity economy through political education, training, and planning. Autumn co-hosts the podcast, How to Survive the End of the World, with Adrienne Marie Brown, her sister. Thank you so much for joining us today, Autumn. How are you doing? Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure to
3: be with you. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm doing good and I should say it was funny as I was listening to you read um, my bio there I'm actually not on the boards of either of those organizations anymore because I'm on sabbatical and as a part of my process of going out on sabbatical I like stepped away from all board service. Not I mean, that that part isn't very important. The part that's important no, that is your inc- like sabbatical. <laughs> no, it is
1: incredibly important that you're talking about your sabbatical, not just encompassing your work, but also the things you do kind of beyond your, your job. Mm-hmm.
3: It was it was an important but like difficult decision to say, I'm not just walking away from my workplace and the podcast, but I'm also walking away from these other like forms of service that and really going into myself.
1: Autumn, how did, how did you get into movement work? Like, where does that start for you? Where does your like role within activist communities first emerge? That's a really great question.
3: I mean, I started out as a student organizer. Um, I, I, did, I did my earliest forms of organizing in high school. And then um, I was also a college student organizer. particular I remember that for me, my I would say the moment where I really felt myself enter movement was. Um, when I was living in England, I I did my junior year study abroad at Oxford University and I got very involved with a lot of radical student organizing that was happening there. And, you know, it's a very international student community at that university, and it was also while I was there that I got exposed to consensus decision making and democratic process, and it's where I first learned about the what ended up becoming like my life's work in many ways, which is the skill of facilitation. And that gave me, when I discovered facilitation, it really kind of gave me an anchor, a way to offer myself in service to movement work. Um, And so there came a point, I I continued organizing and doing anarchist organizing and anti-capitalist organizing for years, but facilitation has been the core offering that I've made to social justice movements for most of the last 20 years.
1: I think that's such a nice segue into what you're going to be doing with the with the conference here in Wisconsin, which is, you know, really I think folks folks have looked to you as a, a guide for how we can better sustain movement leadership, better sustained uh, movement work. I do want to kind of get into your sab- sabbatical and how that. Plays mm-hmm. into these conversations um, because I think in activist organizing communities, burnout is a common phenomena. People go until they cannot, until they yeah. physically can't, until their health will not allow them. How have you been able to sustain a career in activism and organizing and facilitation in the long term? And how does how do you, how do you make space to take breaks? What does it feel like to step mm-hmm. away and and take a sabbatical? How do you maintain calm um, and, and prioritize yourself and your own well-being? Because I think so many of us would love to learn that from you.
3: <laughs> I would love to learn that from myself. No, I, I do have some thoughts. I have some thoughts about it. Um, and, and actually, there's a lot of ways I could answer this question. But the thing that is coming forward for me in this moment is um, spiritual practice, actually. And and. And my spiritual practices have changed and evolved considerably over the last 20 years, my my adulthood. Um, But I would say that that the experience of um, connecting to practices that help me stay connected to a greater reality than the one that I am immediately perceiving or experiencing has been an important part for me of sustaining my work inside of movement um, when we are frequently experiencing the, you know, high highs of victories and the low lows of heartbreaks. And those heartbreaks sometimes come in the form of external losses um, inside of our campaigns, but sometimes they come in the form of, you know, like insider violence within, <laughs> within our communities um, or just ruptures that can't be healed. And um, for me, be engaging in spiritual practices and grief practices over the course of my adulthood in a very, very intentional ways that help me understand. One, there's more to reality than 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 these dramas that are full unfolding. And also two, that there's I'm I'm all of my work has to stay connected to a much larger timeline than my own life. And I think that burnout um, is most likely to come. At least in my experience, it's most likely to come inside of inside of that loss of perspective. Like when we're when we're when we're in survival mode to the extent that we can't connect to the broader timeline of liberation and freedom work, um, and then we get really mired in the idea that it's about our individual lives, which it really is not.
1: Oh, I so appreciate you speaking to that, and I think you know. I think big picture, small picture, like it is hard not to feel like a constant sense of urgency right now. It's hard not to feel worried. And you are, we're both parents. We talked a little bit about being parents. And I think I became, I, w- I was raised an activist, um, but I became a far more attached to the idea that we needed to fight for a better future when I had kids. Um, can you talk a, a little bit about what it looks like for you to do this work and to lead at this level as, as a parent of three young people? I love talking
3: about this um, because I feel like in some ways, and anyone who listens to my podcast knows this, you know, it's like, I, I think I probably have said this at least like once a year for the last seven years, <laughs> but in many ways, I feel like the most important political work I do is raising these children, you know, and it's interesting yeah. as a movement leader, like, cause I, cause I am in a leadership role in movements and I support a lot of leaders in movements, but I feel inside myself that my primary political work is very private where it's like happening in the privacy of my own home. Um, in w- in some ways, because like this generation of children is, they're coming up in such a altered environment. I mean, every generation comes up in an altered in, uh, environment that's altered from the previous generation's childhood, obviously. Um, and it's, I don't think that it's an exaggeration to say that this generation is coming up inside of maybe the most radically altered environment from our from from the previous generation to the next. And so that requires me to constantly be in a practice of humility while still holding responsibility for them. Right? So and that's very challenging. It's very challenging to both, you know, understand and own my authority as the parent. So I have to I have to be I mean, it's so related to our social justice work, right? It's like, I have, to be, I have to be aware of and have facility with using my power well, while also understanding that there's a lot more happening than just my decision-making. And, um, you know, and, and there's been a huge shift in my family life over the last decade um, you know, I went from being a parent who like lived with the father of my children to being a single mom. Um, that was, and that required a radical shape change. To it wasn't just changing the shape of the family, but also it changed the shape of my parenting, um, and made me so much more um, mindful and attentive and present with my children. Um, and, and for me, the thing that I extrapolate from that is, I think, I think we tend to think of like mindfulness and presence as something that, you know, we, we practice at specific discrete moments in time when we're doing mindfulness. What I've learned through parenting is that it's actually, you know, it really, it really is, there's a way of integrating mindfulness and presence as a continuous practice over the course of the day and i wouldn't say i'm not you know i'm a baby baby at at presence right (laughs) most humans are baby babies when it comes to presence especially in our society which is so structured around dissociation and not being present Um, and that's all very on purpose it's much easier to remain functional in a violent society if you're very dissociated so practicing presence um for me it begins inside of the relationships i have with my children
1: i think almost that's kind of a prime example of like the kids exist in the current moment and require uh, a different level of ability uh to to adapt and to be flexible um Mm. and i think that that is something it's one of the reasons i am a huge supporter of mothers in positions of leadership, because I think motherhood and parenting um, hones a set of skills related to organizing and connecting with other people, related to having, you know, truly generative, caring, nourishing, um, fluid relationships with people in which you have to evolve, you have to grow. Um, mm-hmm. and anybody who's gotten to watch like kids grow, like it promotes your own growth. It promotes your own sense that you don't have to be stagnant. I think so much of parenting is letting go of the idea that you're the the teacher um, and yes, yes. really <laughs> understanding that you are the learner, that your kids are, are going yeah. to um, make you think about things really differently and and that is revolutionary in and of itself you are you are coming to wisconsin you are gracing us with your your presence very (laughs) um what what is that going to look like what will you be will will you be doing here in wisconsin well i'm so
3: excited about what i will be doing over there in wisconsin and i'll tell you why so um i'm coming back second year in a row to do a collective keynote at the YWCA Madison's um, racial justice conference. And I was I did a, a collective keynote with my sister at the conference last year. Um, and then the organizers invited me back to come in and do another collective keynote, this time with my dear, dear friend, Susan Raffo, who is the author of a book that just was published this year called Liberated to the Bone. Um, and Susan, Susan is not only a brilliant organizer, activist, writer, thinker, movement, theorist, just weirdo, but is also my body worker, my healer. So Susan is a cranial sacral therapist, and she's the primary healer that I have worked with from a body-based healing standpoint for the last five years of my life um and so we are we are going to be talking about freedom with the context of that is our relationship
1: i think when i've heard you talk and when i've listened to the podcast so much of what you talk about is about thriving um when you talk about like i think so many of us w- when we think about like getting a massage or we think about like going out for a beautiful meal um there's a little bit of guilt that pops up of like Oh, could I be better using these resources to support somebody who is not housed right now? Could I be better using these resources to, you know, work as an abolitionist? Um, I think a lot of us have a hard time um, caring for ourselves while we observe so many people in such desperate need of, you know, basic care. Yeah. Um, can Can you talk a little bit about how you reconcile your own care with, you know, looking, looking at a world in which so many people are uncared for.
3: I was deep in this particular type of discomfort um, in the lead up to my sabbatical starting because for a couple of reasons. One was that um, I, I was on a trajectory towards my sabbatical for a very long time. Like I knew it was coming for, for four years. You know i I was orienting in time for a four-year period towards this sabbatical (laughs) at the point that i scheduled my sabbatical from aorta which is my primary workplace i still had like another year and a half to go to that to get to that start date and i was in quite a, a considerable amount of crisis and burnout in my own life by the time i started my sabbatical i was no longer in crisis or burnout because i had fun radically changed my own life. And then it and then it caused this inquiry to arise of like, well, what does it mean? What does it mean to center myself and my own care and my own body um, from a place of, of not being in crisis and feeling like I'm owed it, right? Because when we're in crisis, if we reach a certain level of crisis, then we can be like, well, I'm owed this time. I, I need this break because I'm in crisis. What does it mean to take a break when you're not in crisis? And the thing that I've tuned into is that I don't owe anyone my suffering.
1: Oh, thank you.
3: Thank you. I just don't, I just don't owe anyone my suffering. I don't owe anyone sadness. I don't know, owe anyone a slog, right? Like my ancestors didn't suffer <laughs> for me to suffer, right? Like, and none of my suffering is for the purpose of my children's suffering. Like that's not, If if I'm going through hardship, I'm not thinking of it as I'm going through this hardship so that my children can also go through hardship and their children and their children like that's not my that's not an intention I'm carrying in my life right <laughs> so so then if I think about the generosity of my ancestors and if I think about myself as a future ancestor who wants to be offering generosity towards future generations then it's it for me it has to be rooted in that understanding that like suffering will come like that's that's a part of life but I I don't need to create conditions of suffering in my own life. And I certainly, I want to suck on the sweet nectar of the moment, you know? (laughs) And that's for me is this year. I'm just like, I'm drinking it down. I am drinking it down. I'm taking naps. I've never taken naps before in my whole life until this year. (laughs) And it's amazing. It's amazing. So, yeah. So, you know. And I do believe everyone can can get to this feeling.
1: I believe that it's inside of us to get to this feeling, you know? I think it's that, sw- that switch that has to flip between kind of survival mode and our right to thrive. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORTFM, Madison. My name is Ali Muldrow, and today we are talking about the Racial Justice Summit coming to Madison in early October on the line with me right now, our two keynote speakers, Autumn Brown and Susan Raffo. Today's show is pre-recorded and we will not be taking calls, but you can send us a message on Facebook, Twitter, or email at talk at wortfm.org. Welcome to the show, Susan. Thank
0: you so much for, for joining us today. How are you? I am so well and it was very pleasurable to come in not exactly knowing what I was coming into and to suddenly hear both a squeal and feel from you, Autumn, and to feel this gorgeous energy of conversation between you. It is good to be here um, and I'm excited.
1: Oh, you two are just, this is like, you two are the sweetest. This is the warmest, like, (laughs) interview. (laughs) Uh Um, it's so obvious like the connection between the two of you autumn while we still have you with us do you want to talk about how you and and Susan started working together
3: oh man it's it's wild too because well so I was Susan before you joined I was singing your praises as both like a brilliant movement thinker and also as my friend and also as my healer um and And I've known, I feel, Susan and I crossed paths many times over years Mm -hmm. before we really sank deeper into relationship with each other. In fact, there was this whole period of time, I moved to Minnesota in 2010, but I didn't move to Minneapolis until 2019. I used to own this uh, piece of land up north, and there was a, a stretch of time where Susan would come up to my land with another dear friend of ours, Arna. And we would just go for these long walks together um, or just sit together and have tea. And I would say, like, that was the point where we really started sinking more into deeper, like, relationship with each other. And then I believe we started working together with you more as my body worker and healer in that sort of window of time entering into the time where I was going through my divorce. And so it's just been, I mean, Susan is important to so many of us. So I just wanna take a moment to really honor, and now I'm gonna cry. Susan Rafa. Cry autumn plus getting very sweaty. uh, (laughs) Sweaty and tears. I love it. But Susan, Susan is is um, has shaped so many organizers, so many movement leaders with her thinking, with her particular, like very, very unique orient body-based orientation to what freedom could be. Um, and so I'm just very grateful that I'm grateful for any moment I get to share with you, Rafo. I'm grateful that we're going to get to be in this like just mind meld together in October, um, and I'm also just grateful to share planet with you. You know, like it's it's a gift to me that we're that our that our lifetimes have overlapped.
0: Sweet love, good lord, autumn. I've said this too out loud before when we were not didn't have microphones in front of us, but I'll say it right now with microphones. I met you and you felt like home and it took a while for us to have the time to go deeper and to see what that means. And it is not just the number of fronts that we are hungry to live into and learn into, because it is absolutely that. Mm -hmm. It is also like this gorgeous weaving of, and lack of confusion about parenting and practice about home and public about body as in the tissue that we have and body as in the energy that we share with others i mean it's just clear and it's also as your reach has extended as it should have the being able to be in home with you and to be part of your route or in a connected route especially now that you live here is not small so, mm-hmm. Ali, it's not small that you let us actually say this to each other in a space that is like this. Thank you to you for the space you hold. Autumn, I love that <laughs> you. I love. Me <laughs>
3: <laughs> on the radio.
0: Oh dear. We we certainly could not s*** it, but I'm gonna just bleep it because it's this is like this it. is the time <laughs> that you about,
3: can because we're pre recorded.
0: <laughs> the oh, beauty of oh, pre recorded. So close <laughs> we are to home right there. I wasn't even thinking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, and I feel like I love that 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 you all exchanged this like love for one another because I think. In, in doing this kind of work, you really do need people who can see you as a, a whole person who do not want to have an extractionary relationship with you, do, who do not want to have a transactional relationship with you. And so I think you just modeled something so powerful um, that even when people have that, we don't often expose that. I think about like the folks I work with and a lot of what what loving each other looks like is sharing these very private little notes like you know shoving like pieces of paper under each other's office doors that are like i just needed to write three pages on how much you mean to me um and how much you've given me um and i think to see people do that like live and and vibrantly is uh is healing in and of itself autumn what is it what is what is healing work what has healing work meant for you what is the work that that Susan has done with you in terms of body work um, what does that what does that do for you before you before you go how does that um, empower you or, or or restore you or what does that look like? the,
3: the way that Susan and I have worked together and Susan's approach has helped me um, understand the portals that exist inside me and not be as afraid of them. When I started working with Susan as a body worker, as a healer, I was really in the beginning of understanding, (laughs) understanding, um, that the way trauma lives in my body is, is related to my, my power my my enormous power and oh say that yes <laughs> and but i was but i was afraid i was i mean like any like you know what uh, discovering our own power is always scary and, <laughs> and you know it's why we have so many like so many of our cultural stories that involve people with superpowers like there's an element of the narrative that's about you know I'm afraid of this thing I can do, right? And so we also have powers. Maybe they're not, and it's not like I can't fly, but there's other things that I can do that I'm, that if I, but I can't do them well if I'm terrified of them. <laughs> and so a lot of, I mean, there's so much that's happening when Susan and I come together to work, but so much of what I experience is that Susan is holding, literally holding my body while I access my power and and she's creating a safe environment for me to access my own power. And so there's a way of looking at that that's like she's helping me work through my trauma. But like increasingly, I feel that I would prefer to frame it in this
1: other way. I think listening to you talk about that just makes me want to cry. <laughs> I'm like <laughs> I think that, I think there are so many people who need to be held um In a way that allows for them to have access to their power, Um, and I just think that that is so rare. And I'm so grateful that you have that, and I'm also so grateful that you share that with all of us, Um, and that you're bringing Susan to to co-facilitate with you, Um, because I think, you know, the the conversation about how we heal, I think that is really, you know, that 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 is the conversation we need to be having, and that's not a conversation about Feeling sorry for ourselves, right? Not um, at all. Feeling, you know, I was talking to somebody recently about the difference between being able to recognize somebody's struggle um, versus seeing, you know, versus pitying somebody within the context of their of their struggle um, and using struggle as as a vehicle for empowerment. Um, Susan, I just want to introduce you to the folks who are listening. Susan Raffo is a body worker, cultural worker, writer who focuses on work through the lens of healing justice. Her interest is in looking at all of the layers of resources needed to support community and movement alongside her own practice. Raffo has spent 12 years working with Kara Page on the Healing Histories Project, an abolitionist and anti-eugenics project working in solidarity with health and heal- healing workers by disrupting abuses of the state. Susan is the author of a number of books, including her latest, Liberated to the Bone.
0: <laughs> to the bone. title, To the <laughs> Bone. Best
3: title ever of all time.
0: <laughs> My partner really? thinks it should have been Liberated from the Bone. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> Oh. Like yes and no, yes and no. The layers
1: I, I'm cut. not mad at her. I am not mad that double entendre, Like let's like. She's not playing any games. I like that she was like, I want your title to be a Nicki Minaj rapper. <laughs> let's really let's let them know how it how it's happening in this house. <laughs> Tuesday, I I, I want to talk to you a little bit about what it looks like to be a healer. Um, I do think that there is a misperception often that healers are people who come in and absorb other people's stuff. Um, uh, that they are, you know, intensely self-sacrificing folks. That um, they're folks who, you know, uh, you know, are are the collectors kind of of the of the trauma we all experience. Um, what what does healing work really look like? What is the healing work that you've been doing? What has it meant to you?
0: That is such a lovely question. And I'm going to tell you that nobody has ever asked me that question. And so it also feels like a gift to respond to it because it's asking me to think deeper. It is so totally groovy that you use the word healer. Healer is not a word that I use. Um, Mostly a word like healer, I think like elder, those are not words you use for yourself. Those are words that others give you. And then that's about their experience, their life. I think it's really important to not identify as such, with massive respect to everybody who does and the choices that they have made. But oh my for- gosh, that's exactly how I feel about the word ally. I'm
1: yes. like, I don't think yes. anyone should be calling yes. themselves an ally. I think if yes. other people want to say you're their ally, dope. Absolutely. Like, you, you gotta, yeah, not not Absolutely. way.
0: Absolutely, it's like. Uh, decolonizing or anything like that. Even abolitionist is one that I feel very cautious about for non-Black folks to use. Um, Those are all words that it's why for me healer and elder, right? The humility is more important than the identification. And so I can say that, what does it mean? It matters to me that I have been in Minneapolis for 32 years. That's part of it. It matters that this land is land that I've chosen that this Oak Savannah, this Great Lakes Basin shapes and informs me, it matters. It matters that I've been in struggle and relationship with a lot of people and have made tons of mistakes, like so many mistakes, so that there's not a sort of glorified sense of, you know, the minute that that a person shows up to another person, and because of just a soft voice, a kindness, an open heart, a stillness, that other person Releases or feels more of their own aliveness, there is a lot of danger of putting that on the person who is holding the space, right? As though somehow it's about them. And it really isn't, right? Healing, like liberation, is something we create the conditions for, but you don't strategize. It emerges when the space is created. And so that's what that feels like for me. And I got into this thing called body work because I'd been an organizer for years and kept being, you know, and so. In the and and I, you know, as a child, I used to see like lines of light between people, I would, as a way of sort of getting a sense of who was safe and who was not in some pretty unsafe spaces. And, uh, and I always felt drawn to uh, other forms of listening, than the meaning behind words that people say. But it was just there. And it was somewhere in the late 90s, early zeros that I was Like everybody else in movement spaces, organizing spaces, like noticing all of those times where we would be coming in being like brilliant, like amazing, like, you know, the revolution's tomorrow. We're so ready. It's just gorgeous, stunning people who knew how to struggle together, et cetera. And then something would happen in the room. Right. And a lot of times it was white supremacy racism, it was homophobia, misogyny, transphobia. It was something that was connected to structural form of violence. Or sometimes it was like ex-lovers who were working their stuff out in the room. Right.
1: <laughs> no, but whatever it was. Yeah. I'm like, this is the real that now we're right really activism because that's right? <laughs> I've had conversations with friends where we're like, if we could just stop dating each other, like this would um we would really be <laughs>
0: oh <laughs> in a different place
1: right now. so thank you for for bringing that authenticity into the space because i think all organizers are like sometimes it comes up sometimes sometimes it comes up that so and so and such and such are are not feeling the way the kitchen was cleaned
0: petty is not always political <laughs> it's so true um, but you know, but those things that happen and then suddenly everybody would be picking sides, right? And then the things that we now know how to say, then the early zeros, I did not know how to say, you know, some the, the facilitators are acting as though nothing happened, or everybody's suddenly fighting. And so I wanted to understand what was happening in that space. So it matters that my coming into a practice came out of organizing and being in collective spaces. Because it also feels like it comes back to the question you just asked about what it feels like. I mean, this thing that, that that gets called healing, right, I always say that there's like levels of it. There's just our capacity to actually show up for each other no matter what, just to listen. Just to listen without trying to cure, to direct, to judge, to to help, to any of that stuff, right? And that's something that we all have the capacity to do. And there's so many reasons why we don't, many of which I have deep compassion for, and many others that I don't. Um, And then on top of that, there's like the trade, right, I chose to learn a trade. And the trade is craniosacral therapy. So I chose to learn some things. And like any trade, You know, you need to practice. You need to have people of more experience than you do to turn to and to learn from. You are in right relationship if you're supporting people who are newer in the field than you are so that you're with both descendants and elders, ancestors. And and what that feels like at this point, honestly, these many years in is just, um, I have a trade that I use in a lot of different ways. Um, I turned 60 this year. So within the age, it's like I get to like,
1: Congratulations! Thank you. It feels really
0: it's the first age I've turned that is felt that has mattered to me, which I don't all the way understand yet. And that's okay. Um, but the other piece with what Autumn said, and this is the last piece I'll say, which I, I said my age, because my generation of folks in movement can sometimes be so wonky about what it means to slow down to rest and to not, you know, and, and, and we can push urgency culture, which sometimes is white supremacy culture, sometimes is urgency culture, all of those things wrapped together. And so that also means that as a healer, as a practitioner, I too am learning how to, how to not be doing all of the time, how to not be pushing. So there's generational shaping that is also shifting so that I can do what Autumn so beautifully just named which is to slow down, to feel space as a physical thing, and to rest.
1: Uh, Susan, thank, thank, you. You, thank you so much for the way that you answered that question. Um, and and it's so nice to know that folks will be, be able to interact with you in person at the, the summit this October. Um, what does it look like for you and and Autumn to to co facilitate to you know have the relationship you have beyond working together um, and to to be activists and leaders within within movement work and mil- movement building? How does how do you do that as people who are different generations as people who have different identities in a variety of ways? What does that look like? What are you offering um, at at the racial justice summit and and what are you asking of of the folks who attend? Mm. Mm.
0: First, and you named it when you witnessed Autumn and I loving each other in front of the microphone, is, um, you know, relationships are everything. And relationships mean mean staying in the time. And there was a period, you know, in Autumn and my lineage where it wasn't, we were not in struggle together, but we were in different spaces that were not necessarily in relationship with each other. And then we found each other back. So, one is just that there is nothing that replaces the amount of time that we have had to be real people together for all of it. I can't say that strongly enough to be real people together with all of our here's the places where I'd swear if I were not in radio (laughs) with all of our stuff. We know that, that, that what we want to do is to be in conversation and practice with folks, and some of the things that the two of us talk a lot about in our lives, which we're going to go into and think about how do we turn this into a keynote, is exactly the questions that you're inviting in this interview. It is what is healing, and in this case, what is healing or transformation, what the language is individually and collectively. How do we hold the truth that there is relationship betrayal between so many of our people? And it is here, always. It doesn't matter how kind, lovely, wonderful we are. That is always in the room. Let's not be afraid of it, it's just straight up. What does that mean in terms of our work together? And from there, I mean, just that question is, what do we actually think is possible? Not in a way that is doing the sort of, you know, yes, some amount of the place that we go really big to what is possible so our spirits can feel the size of that, but also what is possible in the most concrete tomorrow way. I mean, having those against each other. I so appreciate the way both you
1: and Autumn, Susan, have approached this conversation. And it felt you have made this conversation feels so soft and so light. And then I think about my own positionality within movement work, and I have to admit, I feel so angry, Um, I feel so angry so much of the time, um, and so frustrated, and often very, very small. Um, Do you all, feel like that? Do you, uh, have you all evolved beyond kind of that reaction to what's going on in the world? Um, It's hard not to compare yourself to people who you're like, wow, they're in this same fight with me. And it just seems like they're, um, they're taking it in stride. They're just doing it in a, in a much more um, like loving way. What, what got you to that, to that space? Or do you fluctuate between kind of you know, feminist rage and um, and like you know, wholeness and and peace and and warmth and and love that is is generative in a different way than that.
0: First, hi Ali. We don't know each other yet, so I'm just gonna see you right now and listen before I then go like yes, yes, yes. In no, this is again the fact that I'm not swearing makes it much harder to show you mine, but. So I deeply believe in the importance of our fight response, not believe in my brain, like whether it's a yes or a no, the ferocity to remember that this is about life, the ferocity to remember what is not okay. And that feels like such tiniest words. Do I feel rage? Absolutely. Do I feel profound grief? Absolutely. Um, Whatever this thing is that we're calling healing, like none of it is about taking any of that away. You know, I think Autumn said it so well, and you and I don't know each other, but like in a different conversation, the questions I would ask is, does your rage help you feel your power? Or does your rage feel like it takes you away from your power, then that's the work. Right, It's about how do we get to be in the middle of it so our rage or our grief is actually part of our power. My clarity to say I know where what I say yes to and what I say no to. And me and my positionality building up my capacity to have that happen in the moment, as opposed to that 10-moment step back to think about am I even allowed to be angry right now? All that stuff, right? Our work is the discernment. The discernment in this moment is my rage about the present moment or is it about the histories that's being triggered in this present moment if it is about the histories being triggered that doesn't mean it's not valid it just changes the shape of my action right so i am like i don't you know i think peacefulness like healing is something we create the conditions for it's not something we have as a goal when we set it up as a goal There's a danger, particularly for people who look like me, light-skinned ones, of us attempting to shut down rage when it needs to be in the room because we haven't built our capacity to be with it, right? I am like, you know, if the world made sense, then for the next five generations, we would shift positions around who has access to rage and who has access to peacefulness. You know, I think rage is deeply important. It is information. But again, anything can be a tool or a weapon anything and so does my rage does your rage make us bigger stronger more connected and clear or you said sometimes it makes you smaller sometimes it makes us smaller and then that's the information that's where the healing is um you know i think
1: susan how do people talk to you without sobbing like how do you not just (laughs) cry and cry and cry listening to you speak um i thank you for Oh, thank you for saying that. And thank you for, for seeing me and holding space for, for me within this conversation in my journey. But thinking about your age and thinking about kind of being in activism and movement work for the long haul, are there things that you wish you had realized about sustaining yourself within this work sooner? Things that you're like, oh, this is a way that I can make it easier for the next generation to connect to one another, um, to recover from moments that are challenging? Or you know, what do you think, what do you think your, your learning journey has, has looked like just for you?
0: Mm, Whoa, go ahead, ask me a really small question. (laughs) That's an awesome, you got some good questions. I'm sure I'll answer something here, but I'll be sitting with that one for a while. I mean, you know, in the abstract, of course, you know, there's things that I wish I knew at other times, but in the really straight up most concrete is like, I like who I am, at 60 years old. And this would not have been the truth of who I am without the things that had happened before, right? What I want to focus on is something that you named, which is about cross generational work. And one of the things that in my bio, we didn't name is that I'm a part of something called Rep relationships evolving possibilities. We are black led and black vision project that emerged in the month right after George Floyd was murdered. Never ever want to say that just as information. And our focus is on um, what it means to love each other to the next step, right? So building, deepening, supporting, mutual aid, collective care, pod work here in the cities. We also have a hotline so that you can call in crisis urgency knowing that the person who responds will respect and honor your dignity and agency and is there to love you to your next step, not to attempt to fix, solve, et cetera. and I say that because the core group of the five of us have known each other for between 10 and 30 years, and we've made a 10-year commitment to each other to be in this work and to hold it um, before we even understand what, what is possible. And within there, we sit deeply in this question of cross-generational work, is that within REP, We have multiple generations of folks coming in, people who were politicized in relationship to the last three years, people who've been in movement work for 30, 40 years. And what we know is that an ecosystem of community, that that, that our ancestors and evolution have given us gifts at every single age. And depending on who our people are, we've remembered some of the pieces of that some of us have but certainly the closer you are to US overculture and the more that racial capitalism has shaped your family and your line, it's likely you've lost that because it's focused on individual sex success rather than generational um, developmental work. And so that's one of the questions that we sit within. And so I would say, Ali, I know I don't want to leave, that I want to stay in movement work until the point at which some other clarity comes through. But I also want to stay in an in-right relationship as a 60-year-old, and that I don't always know what that means. I wish it had been as important to me at 26 and 36, and it wasn't, and it is. So that's also part of what it means to look left and right and notice that there aren't that many 60-year-olds in movement spaces. And some of it is depending on who your people are, they haven't made it through. Like age should not be a privilege, and it is.
1: Oh, thank you so much for 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 speaking to that, and also I just really appreciate you naming that part of what what makes it rare to be sixty in movement work is that you know if you think about the folks who are sixty right now, and I do LGBTQ organizing, um, you know those are the folks who survived the AIDS epidemic. Those are the folks who who survived, you know. Um, these major moments of of crisis, and those are the folks who were disproportionately impacted by COVID, right? Like we're we're still surviving, we're still um, living in a world that you're you're not guaranteed, you know, survival. You're not guaranteed a life, and and then the quality of that life is also an indicator of whether or not you can access movement work, whether or not you can participate, and to what extent you can participate. Um, so so thank you for, for that recognition in what you were saying. I wanna say hi to Jerry, welcome to the show. Jerry is like one of, the, you know, one of the most wonderful people.
2: You know, I'm, I'm just excited for um, the summit, for this conversation, uh, for reconnecting with you, Ali, and continuing, you know, kind of like awesome conversations that can shape what we want to see in this world. Uh, (laughs) So
0: much gratitude. Oh, my goodness. And Jerry, thank you for everything you've been building, holding and creating with this. You are a force of love. Mm. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Un abrazo, Rafa. So happy to see you in person soon. (laughs) All right, Jerry, welcome
1: back. Uh, We want to get into kind of the nuts and bolts of if folks are listening to the conversation and they cannot wait to be present at the summit. What are their options?
2: Yes, thank you, Ali. Yeah, so the summit is happening October 3rd to the 5th. The first two days, Tuesday and Wednesday, October 3rd and 4th are virtual. And the third day, October the 5th, which is a first day, is an in-person day. All of the information is available at our website. uh, And I can say that's www.ywcamadison.org forward slash Racial hyphen justice hyphen summit. And uh, the date where we are closing registration is September the 4th. Jerry, I cannot thank you enough for joining
1: us here today on WORT 89.9 FM. You have made me so excited to attend the summit both online and in person this coming October. Jerry, is there anything else folks need to know about the summit before we jump off the air?
2: I think that's it. And I also can't wait to see you and see everyone from work at the summit and see everyone that can come. I think this is going to be an amazing, hopefully inspiring, challenging and revitalizing movement for the multiracial movement that we can be that is right at the grasp of our making. Multiracial, multigendered, multi generational. Yes, intersectional. Yes, let's make yeah.
1: it. And we get to party on the roof together. Like oh yes. All... And and don't DJ Ace knows how to get down. Yes, it's yes, really, really good. <laughs> Thank you again, Jerry, for joining us on W O R T eighty nine point nine. Thank you so much. Thank you to everybody who is listening, and we'll be back on the air next week on Tuesday, and we'll be live next week. So if you want to call in. It's an option. WORTFM <laughs> Madison. of our station
2: in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, no precision. High crime, treason, we broadcast in sedition.